Welcome to the Wisdom School, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. To learn more and support the show, visit us at perennialleader.com. I love that. And that's a, probably a great transition into this idea of conflict. It seems like whether someone has spent the time creating clarity around goals and conflict and, uh, and values, conflict can still be there. It seems like that maybe is a universal thing when you just bring up all of these different examples and maybe there's all these forks in the roads and decisions that we, you know, are, are making. And, and conflict is a big aspect of, of the book to me. Could you unpack that a bit and why that's uh, an important yeah. idea? So on the one hand, I think conflict is inevitable. So you're not going to live a life that's conflict-free. But um, there are two kinds of conflict. And when those conflicts are serious enough, they really inhibit your fulfillment. And so one kind of conflict is internal. You can have the different aspects of your psyche can be fighting with each other. So, you know, you, you, um, you love to dance, but you were taught as a child that dancing is a frivolous, dumb thing to do. And so you're conflicted about whether to take your, you know, your tap lessons. Um, that so there's that internal conflict and and that inhibits fulfillment because there'll always be some part of you that's frustrated um it's it'll be one one of the competing parts or the other and then the other kind of conflict is conflict between values um so you know you can think about work life balance as the kind of most talked about example of conflict i think what people say work-life balance, they typically, when they talk about life, they typically mean family. So it's like the conflict between work and family. And, you know, we're not going to give up one of those things, but you can think about those values in ways that make it more difficult to put them together in the same life. Or you can think about them in ways that, um, that fit better together and results in less frustration. Um, so I think, you know, I, I guess like the, the take-home message is conflict decreases the f- fulfillment that I think is essential to living a good life. You can't get rid of all of it because we just are the kinds of beings who are going to have multiple values and we just can't do everything <laughs> in one life. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can reduce those conflicts um, by by figuring out what really matters to you and trying to get yourself to align with those things. Um, and also by thinking about what matters to you in different ways, like being a bit flexible about what work means and what life means when you think through that conflict. And you outline five strategies that I I think are really helpful for figuring out what matters. Uh, Introspection, lab rat strategy, guided reflection, learning from others, and exploration. Before we maybe touch on, on those, I was wondering if you could maybe speak about philosophical thinking, broadly speaking, if you will, like, you know, as 
philosophers, at least how, you know, I'm, I'm a, the average lay person is, is not a, not a philosopher. Even that cultivating that skill of, of, of thinking deeply and maybe with flexibility. I'm just curious if there's any thoughts that come up broadly speaking about philosophical thinking. Wow, that's an interesting question that no one's asked me before. <laughs> um, well, one thing that comes to mind, so and this is maybe this is a bit of a disappointing answer to your uh, deep question, but so my husband also has a PhD in philosophy, but he ended up um, not being, he's, he does educational research now. So he's, he's a really a social scientist. And he, he often says, you know, the great thing I learned studying philosophy is how to tell when this is not the same as that. And <laughs> it is actually, it's a skill that we, you know, we try to teach our students and it, it, to make a distinction between two different things and to keep them distinct throughout your thinking. And actually, when it comes to values, I think one distinction that's really important is the distinction between things that matter instrumentally because they lead to something else and the things that matter for their own sake. Because I think people can get caught up with some goals that are really just purely instrumental, and they sort of forget that that's what they are, like money. You know, I have a lot of students who you ask them what they want out of their careers and their lives, and they say, well, I want to make a lot of money. And then and then you say, what for? And they're, they're kind of like, uh, <laughs> they don't really know. I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting to make a lot of money, but it's really worth thinking you don't want money for its own sake. It doesn't do any good if it just sits there. It's got to be for something for even, even if it's just for bringing you a sense of security. Um, so anyway, I guess, I guess I think that, 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 um, that ability to make distinctions between things and hold those distinctions. I, that's the part of philosophy that I, I, I think is actually quite valuable, even though it, it sounds a little bit basic, I suppose. How about for your students? I mean, someone that works with young people that are interested in, in this stuff, and I'm obviously you're teaching some of these these concepts. Is it challenging, you think, for this, like the lab rat strategy, for example, when we're, and I think people can probably assume what that is, you're studying yourself from from above, if you will. If you haven't done that, it seems like that can be a, a difficult thing for uh, maybe it's easy for some, but it can be difficult for, for others. I think you're absolutely right. And I haven't really talked to students about their experiences trying to do that. So I have talked to students about the strategy in the abstract, but I haven't talked one-on-one -on -one with students. And partly that's because in a classroom, you can't, students won't talk about their personal lives and, you know, it's, it's a bit inhibiting. So I, but I think, you know, if I think about the friends that I've talked to about this, or I think about my own experience, I think it's really something you learn as you get older. Cause I, I, I think when we're young, we have this we have that we're sort of overconfident about our own knowledge and our ability to understand what life is all about and to, to, we think we know ourselves so well. 
you know, I remember thinking like at various points, okay, now I really know. I got it figured out now and I know I know what's what. And as I got older and I realized, well, you feel that way and then two years later you don't feel that way anymore and things have changed. And so there's there's something about the experience of aging that kind of opens your mind to the possibility that like you just don't know everything and you never will. Um and so it, it that kind of counteracts that assumption that all I have to do to figure out myself is just, you know, look within and say, this is what I'm like. Um, mm. I suppose, I guess it's also true that reading a lot of psychological research has made me less confident about my own introspection, you know, because psychologists do a lot of research about how we don't have very good introspective access to our own emotions, for instance, and so sometimes a better way to find out how you feel about things is to sort of pay attention to your your body and what the what the what it's telling you. But that again, you, you I, I guess it isn't age per se, it's just experience. You know, you need to have lived for a while and failed at things before you can <laughs> figure out that just sitting there thinking in your you know, in your head doesn't really cut it. 